Like um, many of you, I have just returned to the forest refuge after a time of being away. And it is just so stunning to come back here. Uh, Certainly there's the beauty, I mean, the gorgeous day, but the beauty of the grounds, the place, the building. But something that's really just been so prevalent for me is just a sense of all of the good intention that has brought this place into being. You know, the, um, in, in so many ways, you know, from being Joseph's vision to um, all of the planning, the work, uh, the generosity from people both on the material level and from the endless hours put into it. Uh, all of the different teachers that have come here over time and really brought the blessing of their teachings and all of the people that come here to practice. <laughs> I knew I was going to lose it tonight. <laughs> Anyhow, it's, we just are sitting in a place of good, a good intention. You know, and that is what is surrounding and supporting us. And, you know, as I sat in interviews the last two days, it was like, oh my God, can my heart take this? <laughs> Just the beauty of all of your good intention in coming here. And just my desire in speaking tonight was that somehow we learn, we gain access to seeing that beauty, that wholesomeness that is there, that it's so evident here, but it is in our very hearts. I was reminded of a line from Galway Canal. Uh, it's a line that f- from the first time I ho- heard it has just struck and stuck in my mind. And it's about reteaching a thing its loveliness. And I just see that as a context for practice. And that we've just forgotten. We've just strayed. We've veered away. And, you know, not because we're bad, whole, you know, terrible people, but because we've been confused. We haven't been able to see clearly. Uh, I, I know in my own life, it can just be a sense of living in a muddle, you know, a muddle of misperception. Um, and that, oh. when we really just stop, be still, open, and listen, it's just there. And it's not ours. We don't create it. We can't fabricate it. We can't pretend. But it's just something that needs to be remembered. To really come to know, to recognize. And then all of the skillful means that we hear are words to help us to do this, 
because these habits, they're tenacious. They are it's quite something. I don't know how you feel about them, but it's like stunning to watch how strong they can arise, how even though we may have seen through many of these habits, they'll still come up and catch us again. And, and it's just learning to see through them, to see them for what they are. Not, not needing to get rid of, but to know as they are. Just coming down to our relationship to what's happening in our mind and body. I wanted to speak a little bit tonight. Actually, a lot of it um, seems to where, where my mind might be going <laughs> is uh, inspired by Deepama, whom probably many of you have heard about, and has just been a woman whom I will tell a little bit about her life because she's been so inspiring to me and to me in coming back here too. I don't know what it is about the forced refuge for me, but Deepama, you know, I, I've lived here for, I think it was over six years or however long since the forest refuge opened. And, and I've just always felt her presence here so strongly. Um, I just, I don't know if the, she, she wasn't here to see this. She has come to IMS many years ago. So for those of you who might not know, Deepama was a little Bengali woman whom, ah, there was a book written about her life her teachings. It's a you know, very thin book. It's called Knee Deep in Grace. But when I first read that book, it was like a lightning rod went through me. It, it really um, called for me into question how I was living my life. Was I really doing enough? Was I really a spy, you know, really holding with conviction and certainty, the aspiration to awaken? And was I living my life guided by that aspiration? So she was this tiny little woman whom actually I never met, but I did get a taste of through a dream once. Um, Maybe I'll come back to that, but Deepama. She... uh, was married at the age of 12, which, you know, in her culture was not uncommon. Um, She, very soon after that, left where she was living and moved to Burma with her husband. And so she's moving to a foreign country. And, you know, that can be for any of us a big uprooting in our lives. And then there she is living in Burma. And she wasn't able to have children for till later in her life. And there can be, in certain cultures, a lot of stigma to that. So that was quite painful for her. And then finally she had a daughter. And then that daughter died very soon after being born. And she was grief-stricken by this, very devastated by it. And then a while later she had another daughter whom lived 
is still living. And then she had a son whom died also. And so this had been brought up a lot of grief. And she ended up with heart problems that were very severe. And her um, husband, who was an engineer, was in the position of having to care for Deepama and her and the young daughter. And then at one point, he very suddenly had a heart attack and died. And so there's Deepama getting on later in life um, with this daughter and living in a country where she didn't have her, her birth family around her to support her, a heart problem, very sick, and what to do. She had always been drawn to meditation. Her husband hadn't wanted her to go off and meditate, wanted her to stay at home with the family. And so she just had to. You know, it was like she had no choice. She was in the depths of suffering. And actually, she became inspired uh, when she had a dream about the Buddha. He, and, and in the dream, he was chanting, it's from the Dhammapada, clinging to what is dear brings sorrow, clinging to what is dear brings fear. To one who is entirely free from endearment, there is no sorrow or fear. And so after she had this dream, she knew she had to practice. And so she went, and she listened to the teachings, she heard the instruction, and she took it completely to heart. And out of that, in her own life, there was dramatic shifts, change. And she, through the gaining of understanding, clarity within her own heart and mind was able to help many other people. One of the things that I have found so inspiring about her story is that sometimes we can think that whether it's because of an action we've done that we have so much regret about, or actions multiple, <laughs> really multiple in life, or um, things that have happened to us, the conditions we may have grown up in may have been really severe, hard. You know, there are many of us carry deep trauma uh, within our hearts. And we can just get the sense that, you know, freedom isn't possible for us. And yet here was Deepama, who knew very deeply in her own life experience the depths of suffering, and was still able to find that inherent beauty. In reading her book, there was in many ways, this sense of, it almost seems like fierceness, but um, it's, it's just such a level of integrity that is so balanced with kindness and compassion. 
It, to me, um, the, there's just such a hole in it. And this is something that uh, Amy Schmidt, who wrote the book, Knee Deep in Grace, says, Deepama perfected a mature form of effort, one that encompasses both strength and ease, the masculine and the feminine. Practice requires more than a zealous samurai warrior attitude. It also demands that we find compassion and love within ourselves. We can come to practice like Deepama from a place of childlike wonder that is invincible in its truth and sincerity. I love this combination of you know, childlike wonder and invincible in its truth and sincerity. So one of the teachings, a line from her teachings, that to me it just um, embraces how she was, how she lived, and how she described practice. She, she said to practice without regard for body or life with all the love in your heart. And it just has that sense of integrity, that deep commitment, and that love, that quivering of the heart, the care, the devotion. When we hear the words to practice without regard for your body or life, that can sound severe. That can, um, I, and I know that in my own life, there was an attempt to do this. There was, uh, it was not balanced. You know, it was just the one side of the equation. And, you know, this I saw manifest when I was um, practicing for a long period of time in Burma and, you know, have gone there, like many of you have come, with really good intention. Uh, and, and within that, getting caught up in striving, in becoming, in leaning forward, trying to get, and... Whoa, what a mess. <laughs> you know, there was certainly a crashing that happened from that, um, which you know, sometimes is a lesson we have to learn. We have to learn it the hard way. Hopefully, you don't have to do it to the level that some of us have done it to, that, that we discover that it really needs this balance of with all the love in your heart. It just, it just changes the whole equation. And so, you know, to me, the practice without regard for your body or life, this is really when we don't keep falling prey to fear and anxiety about the perpetuation of life, of what might happen. But we really take the seat. It doesn't mean fear will not arise, because you know it just does. It, it is, um, you know, uh, until we're fully real. I don't know when it's gone. I know I still experience it. I can put it that way. <laughs> but, but you know, so it's not that fear doesn't arise, 
but that we aren't stopped by it. That, you know, that, that when that fear arises, it's met with all the love in our hearts. No, we have, we find a sense of integrity, a sense of taking the seat with truth. And we allow for what is. We don't have to change what is. But we do have to learn to be present within it. We do have to learn how to allow it to be without becoming it, without identifying. I also hear this line, practicing without regard for your body or life. As an expression of faith. When we really have faith in the Buddhist teachings, in the practice, we can wholeheartedly give ourselves over to it. We can just bring bring the totality of whatever energy is present and direct it towards this moment. What's here now? And we do that, you know, when our faith is strong, there's no wavering, wobbling. And that doesn't mean it's easy, (laughs) not to be mistaken. But it's like, it's like that, you know, it gets really pissy at times. And it's like not being daunted by that. Note some days the mind just runs amok. And it's like keeping that resolve of heart. Letting that be, the, it's, the, it's, the God, it's like remembering why we're doing what we're doing. And that, that peace, remembering why we're doing what we're doing, is something that you know, we can talk about, hear words about, and later on I'll be speaking more about. But for each of us, it's really having to find, discover that movement of the heart towards goodness. And for each of us, it's going to be different how we feel that, what moves us, what inspires us, what lights that fire in us. But it's like getting a wisp or a sniff of that scent and staying true to it, no matter how confused we might feel.
So practicing without regard for your body or life. With all the love in your heart. So, as with all the love in your heart, to touch into love itself. To touch into that deep desire for happiness that we all have, that we can get confused by. I, I remember, you know, in my youth that. When I look back now, there's, you know, obviously when we look back, we have a lot more understanding than we often do in the midst of. But it was, you know, when I look at what I felt, you know, that I felt trapped by life in a sense at times. And that there, I had, as a teenager, you know, the whole rebellion, you know, there was, I, I was rebellious. <laughs> I, um, yeah, I was rebellious. We'll just leave it there. <laughs> and, and just, you know, it was like busting to get out. But I see that really it was just a raw form of the desire to be happy that didn't have wisdom supporting it. You know, it was just that since it's possible, I don't know how, but I've got to, you know, and everything around me was responsible for me not knowing it in myself. And then, of course, at some point in life, seeing that that wasn't the case, that um, that no one else was to blame, and but but it's like to really honor in ourselves that wholesome urge to let that be there, to practice in a way that it's just seeing, you know, really in simple terms, that this is what's motivating us. And, you know, on one side, it's the desire for happiness, and on the other side, it's um, the desire to be free from suffering. You know, it's the seeing, the impact of being lost, confused, and how painful it is to feel separate, alienated, and how painful it is to live in a world where many other beings are caught in the same dilemma. And then, you know, it's like the heart's response to that. And we let that fuel our practice. We let that be what our practice is held in.
I always have the sense of this desire for happiness, which is a wholesome urge, desire for liberation. It's, it is wholesome and you know, said to be one of the um, uh, factors that is needed to awaken. And we know it, we feel it, We have a sense of it. And then our courageousness of heart is what helps us to stay true to it. And our practice is what helps us to clarify the means to that, to dispel the delusion, the misperception. When we come on retreat, one of the things I think we can find happens is that sometimes our expectations masquerade as aspiration. And that we can have um, ideas, beliefs about what should happen that we don't even see. And um, it's like ideas about what it means to be awake, perceptions um, that are really just the conceptual mind. And so with aspirations, it's something that gets clarified as we practice that we begin to see where uh, expectation starts to come in, where we become goal-orientated in a way that leads to you know, perpetuating a, a sense of self. You know, we, we start perfecting an, an idea of how things should be. And we learn. You know, and again, sometimes that learning is painful, but if we really learn, then it's, you know, it's useful, it's helpful. So this is, you know, sometimes in our practice, you know, even when I talk about um, awakening, the sense of possibility of awakening, I know for some people it's like bringing up this carrot that, that is, it is really torturous. And that what uh, we just need to watch where we start to move forward, lean into something in the future, and that what we're really listening to is that inner quivering, that inner, inner movement of heart in this moment. The aspiration directing us to full presence here and now. So for me, in 
the line with all the love in your heart. It is often for me remembering those around me, those dear to me, all beings, that they, that that inspires me to want to give wholeheartedly here and now so that I can do the best that I can. And this leads into um, the aspiration of bodhicitta, which really helps us to uh, take the practice out of a self-cherishing framework. It helps us to open it up, to be, to give a context to the practice that we're doing here, you know, in a very simple environment, um, just being very simply with experience, and yet it is something that in itself can have far-reaching consequences and benefit. And so the word bodhicitta itself, bodhi is awakened and citta is heart-mind. And bodhicitta is the awakened heart-mind. And um, the aspiration of bodhicitta is to realize the awakened heart-mind. And this can be done for the benefit of all beings everywhere. At times for me, in reflecting on the suffering of the world, this will just naturally call up energy to bring to practice. To, to bring to you know, the, whatever uh, difficulties might be arising as we sit or we walk in our time here. And it, it just it gives a context to, to really be with this experience, to understand it in its nature, to free the mind from the habits of delusion, to help all beings everywhere. We find that there is, excuse me, We find that <clears throat> that's the cheese toast. <laughs> um, we find that, that there are two levels to bodhicitta. 
One is the ultimate, the awakened mind, and the other is the relative level. And this is where the uh, aspiration of bodhicitta, where in our lives we can consciously uh, cultivate, or the word cultivate I always stumble over, because turn our minds towards the qualities of loving kindness and compassion. Um, and this on the level of the relative, really helps us to live honoring and respecting, um, caring for life. And on the ultimate level, not being bound by the relative level, seeing into the interconnectedness of all life. Somehow this, to me, just opens the heart to doing the practice in a very vast way, that you know, it's just not so self-referencing. And this is expressed by a uh, Tibetan lama named Kunu Rinpoche. He was a renunciate, and he just dedicated his life to the practice of bodhicitta. Um, and, and he wrote a book about it, and it's called Verses in Praise of Bodhicitta, and, it, and it's vast as the heavens, deep as the sea. And, you know, this is the immensity of heart. Like, you know, the calling forth of all of the love in our hearts. This is the immensity, or gives a, you know, just a a sense of the immensity of the well we can draw from. And so, ah, as we practice, as we enter into doing this work, which, you know, over the coming weeks, many of you are in the midst of months, whatever, you know, we just hear more about how we awaken, what the path is, where, where this practice, you know, how to use it to guide us to really come to know for ourselves this inherent goodness. So I think I'd like to emphasize for each of us to see if in some way within our own experience, our own hearts and minds, that we 
can touch into what our motivation is in our own language. And to remember that this is something that we can call to mind. We can call it to mind at the beginning of a sitting. We can call it to mind at the beginning of a day. We can call it to mind when we're facing difficulty, challenges. But if it's clear to us, and you know, it doesn't mean that there's a lot of words, a lot of language. It might be a felt sense. But that that be what guides us. And it takes an inner listening. It takes a quietude of heart and mind. And then just supporting that and seeing what that looks like. How do we stay true to this in this moment? Which will vary with experiences. Know that um, these two lines, practicing with all the love in your heart, with practicing without regard for body or mind. It's not being stopped by the fear, but it might still be taking care of the body. It's not separate. But what helps us to fully sit in this moment? And sitting might actually be laying down. (laughs) It's not limited to posture. But what helps us to stay true? In times where it feels like wavering, you might actually reflect on all of the wholesome intention that is surrounding us here, allowing us to do this work, and how that has come out of others' faith to the Dharma, their devotion, their care, and that that can support us. I'd like to close tonight with a teaching from the Dalai Lama. It's called Never Give Up. Never give up, no matter what is going on. Never give up. Develop the heart. Too much energy is spent developing the mind instead of the heart. Be compassionate, not just to your friends, 
but to everyone. Be compassionate. Work for peace in your heart and in the world. Work for peace. And I say again, never give up. No matter what is happening, no matter what is going on around you, never give up. So let's just sit for a few minutes.